Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Sharon, before we start, can I just say, you remind me today of a small Mexican chihuahua. (laughs) Hmm, is that a hint as to what we are going to be talking about today? Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. And today we are going to be doing our first Twin Peaks episode. Woohoo! This will be an ongoing thing where we invite a mutual Twin Peaks fan and have them pick a topic of their choice and then discuss that topic. Today we have our good friend and mutual Twin Peaks lover, Joe, with us. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you very much for having me. This is fantastic. Thanks for being here. You had to be our first guest because we know how much you love the show. We've known you for a long time, and we know that you would hunt us down and kill both of us if we had someone on the show before you to talk about Twin Peaks. So. I appreciate you realize the stakes that are inherent in, uh, in having me on. So that's, uh, that's all of that is exactly right. But uh, even with that, incredibly touched that I'm joining you today and that I'm the first person that you, uh, uh, that you called up to talk Twin Peaks. This is going to be great. So you wanted to discuss the sound design on Twin Peaks, and Mindy and I both know that you're in a band called Furious Frank, which can be described as, quote, high-energy gypsy carnival rock. You play trombone, you also do backing vocals, and we will let you shamelessly plug your band at the end of our episode, don't worry. Um, But tell us why you chose sound design as your topic. Did your love of music and being in a band have anything at all to do with why you chose this topic? First, I think that you laughed a little bit when you said Carney Rock. I think that there was, you weren't even Carnival. able to get through that. You laughed. That was, that was horrifying. Uh, no, but yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and I think the evolution here is so interesting. So it, the question on my just love of music, being a musician, um, you know, quote unquote musician, um, and being such a fan of the uh, Battle of Menti soundtrack, all of the wonderful music and the lush themes um, that came through through the first series, uh, seasons one and two, was just such a touchstone for so many people, and myself included. And to then have season three, which is just such a different animal in so many ways uh, from a sound design perspective and just a utilization of sound perspective. And for Lynch and the, his collaborators who worked on the sound for this to go in a way that still incorporates some of that original theme material, just at a very loose level, but goes so much deeper into these, um, you know, kind of non-harmonic, non-melodic, you know, natural and mechanical and electrical sounds and layering them and reworking them and building them into these different soundscape tapestries, you know, whatever kind of word you want to use to describe that. Uh, I I don't know how long into this, uh, the, the return season, it took me to realize just how different this was going to be sonically. And part of me was like, I miss some of that, the, the prevalence of those themes from the first time around, but this is so much more powerful and so much more evocative uh, to me at least. And it was just something that on rewatching them and, and giving more thought to what I was seeing, putting headphones on, really not even looking at the screen sometimes and just letting um, those sounds wash over me has just been uh, a real joy. Okay, so um, that was Horse Talk Horror. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> that was an awesome description as to why you chose this, this subject. I couldn't agree more. Well done, Joe. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh... See you next week. <laughs> okay. No, but that's 
that you summed that up perfectly. That was beautiful. And also, um, we are going to delve into basically everything you just said and kind of break it down throughout this episode. So I can't wait to get into doing that. Um, but before we start, we all chose a beer that is related to Twin Peaks in some way that we're going to be drinking during this discussion. So quickly, let's just go around and tell everyone what we're drinking. Joe, you go first. Uh, I am drinking from Boulevard Brewing in Kansas City. This is called Steep Drop. It's a nitro cold brew milk stout, uh, keeping with that coffee theme. First time I've had it. I've had Boulevard stuff before, but it's really good. Very much enjoying it. Nice. Mindy, what are you drinking? I actually uh, have two options. Um, I will be honest and say that I sort of ran out of time this week and didn't was having trouble finding, which is odd, uh, coffee-related beers. So I've got uh, Spiteful Brewing's Malevolence, uh, Chocolate Caliente. Uh, it's actually, but then it says Russian Imperial Stout. So <laughs> there's vanilla beans, cinnamon, and cocoa. Re- Ribs? Cocoa ribs? Is that what you say? I don't know. Ribs? Did you say cocoa ribs? <laughs> the way it's written on the can, yeah, it totally, that's why I was like, what? No, nibs, <laughs> that makes more sense. Um, along with a unique blend of peppers. God, their, their writing on this can is, is very hard to read. But yeah, it's. I also thought the name Malevolence works with like the whole idea of Bob. So it's got a chocolatey coffee-ish stout feel to it, but I also have a blackberry uh, hard cider just in case I want to, they didn't have cherry, they they were out of cherry, but in case I want to switch to something more pie related. But I do like the, like I said, I want, I like the name. So I figured, well, that works. So (laughs) that's appropriate malevolence. Good choice. Fucking Mr. C. Sorry that you've been confronted with a, uh, with a bad font situation there where they're, uh, they're really challenging <laughs> you. And I just like to point out that now that Sharon has laughed at you and me, so we're going to have to start teaming up to just uh, bring it to her hard for the rest of this conversation. Oh, man, Joe. Bring it. You have no idea. We're, we're all going to be going after each other. I have a feeling Spencer's going to be like, everybody stop shouting. It's because we're excited, that's all. What are you guys drinking over there? I'm drinking Black is Beautiful by Foreign Exchange Brewing Company in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, it's brewed with, or it's brewed in collaboration with Church Street Brewing Company, and it's part of the Black is Beautiful initiative hosted by Weathered Sold. Weather, I can't talk today. Weathered Souls Brewing Company, and proceeds from the sale of this beer go to the Restore Aurora Fund for restoration and building in that community, and also the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So I can totally get behind uh, contributing my money to those organizations. And it's an imperial stout brewed with Ugandan coffee, Ghanaian and Mexican cocoa nibs or ribs as many <laughs> would say uh and also saigon cinnamon and it's 10 percent abv so hey mine is too and uh thanks for showing us up with the charity sharon no i'm kidding <laughs> that that's awesome that's awesome yeah the black is beautiful initiative is pretty great i've, I've tried a couple of those beers from stuff uh, that's that's around where i live uh, great to be able to tie a good cause to a good product like that absolutely and I am drinking a beer that is not related to Twin Peaks at all, but um, it is sweet, so I like it. It is Prairie Artisan Ale's Corner Piece, 
which is an imperial stout with birthday cake flavor. So it's a, a bit beery, but it is also very sweet. So I like it. And birthday cakes are like donuts. <laughs> or pie. That's, yeah, or pie. You've put your stake down in the cake versus pie uh, uh, dilemma or question there. You are, you are a cake man. Cooper wouldn't turn away birthday cake if it was offered to him, so... Right, and just, Sharon, make sure that Spencer's head doesn't fall into it like Leo's does into his birthday cake. (laughs) That's why I chose this one. New shoes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, my beer, just one last note, is uh, 5% alcohol, so I look forward to hosting the podcast in about 50 minutes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've got some... I got a cold brew here, and I've got, like, an assortment water food. I've got an assortment going on. I think we're covered. But thank you, Joe. You might have to. (laughs) I just want to warn anyone who is not caught up on seasons one, two, or three of Twin Peaks or Firewalk With Me that there will be lots of spoilers in this episode. Um, Let's start getting into this conversation. I do have a quick David Lynch story that comes from IndieWire to start the discussion off. So David Lynch often tells the origin story about the moment when, as a student at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, he started to think of himself as a filmmaker. While working on a painting of a woman in a garden at night, he took a smoke, he swears it was a cigarette, no drugs involved, and he looked at his work. First, he started to hear wind, and then the green in the painting, surrounded by a heavy, thick, black paint, started to move. And the next thought is, oh, a moving painting. And that's what started it. It's sound and picture. Dean Hurley, who has worked full-time for Lynch, managing his sound studio for the last 13 years, says, in telling of that story, people skip over the wind part and jump to that the painting started to move. But that's the romantic essence of David. The fact that the image is making him hear something. Later in life with his filmmaking, he ends up working with Angelo Badalamenti, composing music before they've even shot things. Those sounds, that music, that ends up conjuring the images. And then, Mindy, you had a little uh, surprise that you wanted to mention. Well, that too, though, that, that quote, uh, thank you and good night, ladies and gentlemen. The, I love that idea of conjuring images. Like, that's totally how David Lynch works. I could see that. This is a eight, season three, at least, is an 18-hour moving painting. Um, And I actually do have a little surprise before we totally dive in. Um, In preparation for today's discussion, I reached out to Mr. John Neff. What's up, John, if you're listening? He is a fantastic musician. Uh, David Lynch's music partner, that's how he's actually listed on IMDb. But also he's a very, very good friend of David Lynch's and just a generally wonderful human. Uh, Sharon, Spencer, and I were lucky enough to meet John at Twin Peaks Fest back in the summer of 2017. You can hear John's musical contributions in films like The Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire. Uh, And Neff also co-wrote the song No Stars, which appears in season three of Twin Peaks, uh, along with David Lynch and the utterly fabulous and we speak from experience Rebecca Del Rio who also sings lead vocals and that song she's she's amazed balls that's the song it plays out part 10 at the roadhouse in case you want to check it out anyway I sent John a message telling him about our discussion and asked if he had any input that he could provide that we could share regarding sound or Lynch or whatever Um, So regarding David's use of sound and music, this is what Neff had to say, quote, 
For Lynch, the music has to underscore the mood of the scene, sometimes to put you on edge, sometimes to make you feel happy, like Pretty 50s in Mulholland Drive, unquote. So here was here's my thoughts on that. First of all, I think that's super accurate um, and musically evocative moments in Twin Peaks, there's a lot to count, like take your pick. But I got stuck on this idea of happy musical moments, probably because they're kind of few and far between on Twin Peaks. <laughs> and the word joy immediately conjures for me, Becky and Steven in that convertible with the top down. And then I love how you love me starts playing and scoring the scene. And joy may not be the best word because it's probably more like coked up fun. You know, that's how Becky and Steven roll. But all I know is that when that song starts and Becky leans back and she smiles and the wind's blowing her hair in the breeze, there's that sense of innocence mixed with nostalgia that just takes me back to our initial introduction to the town of Twin Peaks back in season one. Uh, Seeing Laura and Donna giggling on camera during a picnic and the town seemingly picture perfect, which we all know is a facade that masked unspeakable evil and violence. Uh, And let's be honest, Laura was probably totally coked up during that picnic video, just like Becky 25 years later. But the point is, the moment that song starts... It doesn't matter if it's the coke or the sun or the nice day that inspired her smile. It feels like a perfect moment caught in time. And it still makes me feel giddy with every rewatch. It it makes me feel happy for a moment, really. And then I just go back to wanting to punch Steven in the face. But that's the whole other story altogether. (laughs) All right. So let's get into the main discussion. Uh, First up, what is a Lynchian sound? Joe, do you want to take the lead on this one? Sure. No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, happy to. Happy to encapsulate that in, uh, you know, a couple of minutes. I mean, I covered some of this at the outset just as it relates to Twin Peaks. um, But when I think of David Lynch sound, there are certain elements that really come to the table. A lot of it is um, the kind of more non-musical elements are those that really pop in my head first. And these are the things that are more tied to nature. Um, So obviously wind is a recurring motif, something that he's um, stated has been very powerful um, as as, as part of his art uh, throughout his career. Obviously throughout Twin Peaks, the different sounds of of wind are very prevalent. I don't know if you guys follow the Twitter account for ominous whoosh, um, (laughs) (laughs) different screen caps from the return and and with the, the, the closed captioning. Uh, tying out the sound design cues that just says ominous whoosh. So obviously a lot of ominous whoosh, a lot of electricity. um, That's obviously very central to Twin Peaks, but also has been there since Eraserhead. Uh, You know, I hadn't seen Eraserhead in some time and revisited a little bit of it, mostly at the climax before, uh, you know, while kind of putting together my thoughts for, for this conversation. And it's just striking how the climax there is Basically, so many of those elements, sound elements, are right there throughout season three. Um, you know, they're the kind of crackle of electricity, strobe lighting, obviously more of a visual um, than a um, than a sound cue, but very much tied to electricity. And, and clanging, kind of a mechanical radiator clanging, things like that, which it just shows for me, I, I guess there's multiple ways to look at that. One could be this guy's been beating the same drum and doing the same thing for you know, the entirety of his career over 40 years. But some of these things are just so elemental and essential 
Um, and there he layers them and builds them and plays off them together. It's just, it's great. Also, as I mentioned, the kind of more mechanical sounds, rhythmic kind of propulsive banging or grinding, uh, low thrumming, uh, these kind of non-musical things that are just uh, to the the point that um, Mindy was making for from John's uh, quotation, that this is much more of the put you on edge stuff. Some of it can be more of that joyous side, but very much it's the, the put you on edge uh, part of the equation. And then musically, it's just so, you know, these kind of, for Twin Peaks at least, and and the work that he's done with Battle of Menti, I guess, throughout his career, these very lush melodies, these very haunting melodies, and these ones that kind of resolve and travel from, from something that's uplifting and optimistic. And then there's a denouement that brings you down into more of a minor, sad, melancholy, you know, this wide range of emotions across, what, 20 seconds? Obviously, it can be more, but... It's just so impressive the way that they've found a working relationship here to uh, be able to to be able to draw out those emotions and and, and do so uh, so readily and for such a long period of time. Yeah, I'm so glad that uh, Lynch and Baldelamenti found each other because they're like so symbiotic. They like Baldelamenti can read David Lynch's mind. Um, the music is just it's so like dreamlike and ethereal and it exactly like it builds tension it makes you feel sadness it it conveys all these emotions and just going back quickly like when you were talking about um the use of electricity and all all the mechanical industrial sounds that lynch uses in his work by no means is he the only director that uses sounds like that but you can tell lynch electricity apart from other films that use electricity you can that's true i hadn't thought about that yeah and like i don't really know what his exact secret is but you know like you were saying with the different layers and stuff he stuff like that he usually like undercuts the electricity noise with some other ambient sounds and you can hear it and you go ah that's lynch like you don't even have to see anything on the screen like you just automatically know like that is lynch electricity You had made a point, Joe, about, um, I I don't remember how you put it, like that sort of like not atonal kind of low tone that especially in season three is almost subconsciously playing in especially like scenes that are that build up to like bad shit's going to happen kind of situations that put you on edge. On my rewatches preparing for this, I hadn't noticed as much how he really we like will slowly work that into the scene so that by the time it starts like that weird sound starts to build and you start to feel uncomfortable but you're not really sure why like you've been hearing it the whole time you just didn't even know which is awesome because he's fucking with our subconscious Mm -hmm. which just like literally immerses you emotionally and psychologically in the work which is pretty badass for sound design for film no, that's totally accurate, and it's something that, again, listening more uh, recently on headphones was something that just gets, you're able to pull out much more powerfully. It's those elements that, to Mindy's point, kind of build and develop over time, something that is hardly even noticeable uh, when the element or the effect is is started off and then crescendos or does something else to kind of speed up its tempo, just be raised in the level in the mix uh, to where it becomes this uh, dynamic part of what you're hearing towards the end of it. 
And it's that's just so true with so many of these sound elements in season three. It's something that when you're watching, you're certainly picking up, but if you really are focusing your attention on it and trying to uh, peel back the layers a little bit as to what are those sub elements that you're hearing, um, that's very difficult to do. And we can certainly talk about how there's kind of a black box as to, you know, how um, uh, Lynch and his collaborators put this stuff together, but it's, um, you know, these kind of otherworldly sounds where you can't even really pinpoint what it is that, you know, is that electricity? Is that a grind of a gear? Is that the clang of something? Is that, you know, fingernails on a blackboard? You know, what, what is causing these, uh, these sounds that are kind of invading your consciousness? Yeah, yeah. Going off the, the tonal noise and how Lynch will like subtly put it in the background and it'll like slowly build up, build up. Uh, and take on a life of its own. There was an interview with Dean Hurley, who has been working with David Lynch for years and years and years, doing sound for him. Um, This was from soundeffect.com. He said, the shot at the end of the series where Cooper is waking up at the roadside motel room alone after he spent the night with Diane, they were going through the audio dailies and there was something in the motel room. There was some kind of a tone that was coming from an air duct that was very, very faint, but it sounded like this harmonic, almost choral sound. You could hear only the faintest suggestion of it, but he thought it sounded very interesting. So he comb filtered it and dialed it up with specific frequencies that would exaggerate it. Joe, I'm sure you understand what this means much more <laughs> than I do. I'm just reading the quote. Um, I certainly do not. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you totally could have pretended like you did, and we, not, we would have not known. <laughs> but um, So he exaggerated the sound that the tone was harmonizing at, and that one sound ended up creating this room tone that was used in tons of places throughout the entire series because... It was this very music-esque room tone that was incredibly rich in mood. Uh, For reference, you can hear it in the part in the second episode after Phyllis was visiting her husband, Bill Hastings, in jail. She walks out of the room to go talk to her lawyer, George. So it's playing in the background there. Apparently, David was thinking about putting a music cue there, but he thought it would be too much, so they use this instead. Uh, He said that the sound ended up being the foundation for the sound of the vortex that happened several times throughout the show. It can be heard as we travel across the ocean in part eight towards the fireman's residence. It's also used in countless scenes where there is no music being used at all and you need very subtle mood enhancement. Hurley said for him, it was the single most useful multi-purpose sound discovered for the show. So, okay, that speaks to another thing that I really love about just David Lynch and how he works. Kind of like how Bob got created, like Frank Silva accidentally was reflected in the mirror as they were shooting the scene and Lynch was like, eh, let's use it. That is awesome because... Happy accidents. Exactly, exactly. And that I was paying special attention to that noise when I was rewatching parts of season three, because it just, I had, it hadn't like, I, I knew I had heard it the first thousand times around, but it never, it hadn't like registered as completely that way. That's awesome. Like, I love it. Thanks for sharing. That's, that's awesome. Fantastic. That is just, uh, it's great. I actually, we're going to talk a little bit more, I think about frequency as we move through this, because I found some cool shit about that, but uh, I'm not a sound person either, so I'm not going to get technical. But yeah, I, I, he he definitely, I feel in season three specifically, 
seasons one and two are a little bit like Angelo's score is used a lot more like and there's specific I feel like you know portions of the songs from the soundtrack of seasons one and two that are like that dictate like okay now it's sort of a silly moment with Andy and and Lucy or something like that whereas like in season three there's not very much of that and sound other than that sound you mentioned, I feel like is used very strategically, but I love that he was just like, this is this weird sound in this room that we didn't even hear. What can we do with it? I've noticed that like the silly moments in season three, they're not undercut with goofy music like in yes. the original series. Those are basically the scenes that are completely absent of sound. Yes. And it's just the dialogue and you know whatever is going on on the screen that makes it hysterical because there there are a ton of humorous moments throughout the third season I mean it's kind of like this roller coaster of you know very dark and then he'll throw in the scene of like Dougie Jones getting hit in the head with the baseball from Sunny Jim (laughs) it's like five seconds of just silliness you know and then it goes back to you know I don't know Mr. C murdering someone else or whatever some other dark scene but yeah there's not a lot of music in those parts so that's an interesting observation just to piggyback on that sorry um I one of the things I love about David Lynch in general and why I watch his stuff is that I love juxtaposition and he is like the master at that and to your point when I was watching parts one and two, um, for instance, like the, I actually had that same exact thought about the funny moments not being scored because like the boardroom scene where Hawk is trying to tell Andy and Lucy that they have to go through the old case files for Laura uh-huh. to like, like it's totally <laughs> silent and like Lucy's just like babbling about like we haven't we even given a Christmas card from Agent Cooper and like this whole, <laughs> and then like the silence sits there and it's like Hawk just looking at them. And so he lets his actors and the dialogue do the talking, but then to add in juxtaposition, like the, the scene with Lucy where the guy comes in and is like, I need to speak to Sheriff Truman. Which one? That Mm -hmm. whole thing. That's silent. Mm -hmm. And then boom, the very next thing we hear, no transition, no graceful, nothing it's the first drum beat of that distorted American woman, and it's where we meet Mr. C. So it's like you he does that so well where he gets you involved and gets you in one place and then knocks it right out of you and, move, and shifts gears with no warning. And I just think that's awesome. Yes. Uh, t- totally, totally right. And just to build on that a little bit, I mean, because the first two seasons were built around that kind of soap opera aesthetic to an extent. Yeah. Uh, obviously the pacing of it and the music of it, music being far more prevalent and the pacing of it was edited together, um, you know, in a more um, kind of typical fashion. Whereas this, that the scenes are able to kind of drag out both in between kind of bits of dialogue. As someone talks to someone, there's very frequently a gap between the sentence and the response. And then even at the end of the scene, there's very frequently these kind of like long, silent or just filled with the with the sound design elements of electricity wind what have you where it's not it's not like a quick button right you make the joke and then you 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 know there's a little musical interlude as you transition to the next scene right right? there's this kind of flat silence maybe or just a continuation of what you've been hearing when you've been trained as a consumer of this stuff to laugh at these different other cues that are coming out when you remove those cues 
it's it's just it's a little bit jarring. I mean, you're right. It's it's still as funny, but it's in a totally different way. And I think you process it, particularly the first time you watch it, um, in a way that is just foreign to what you typically expect to see in something like this. Yes, yeah. and I uh, yeah that that's that's another reason why I like it because it is so different and jarring is such a great word to describe that. But I really quickly wanted to point out that. Um, uh, if you the 25 years later site always has such great articles and and ideas about stuff and I was looking through uh, their review of the the book the secret history of Twin Peaks that came out obviously before season three started the author of this article which we'll post in the show notes actually points out that sound has a presence not only on the show, but in all of the written works that they've done, like the Diary of Laura, like all those extra things, um, including the, the secret history. I totally forgot about this, but the phrase, and I looked this up on YouTube to say it, but Joe, if you know this phrase and I'm saying it wrong, tell me, uh, diegetic sound? Diegetic, that's my favorite. Lots of diegetic sound here. So this is from, um, he, he was discussing how, the, the, I'm going to stop saying he, and I'm going to be respectful. Uh, John, John Bernardi, who wrote this article, um, was discussing how that, that that's actually very present and mentioned even in the Secret History book um, during the section where they talk early on about uh, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard trying to like conjure up a demon of some sort and I'm going to read this part from his his review um, where he says that diegetic music is present in the book as as much as it is in the TV series the parsonage for example uh, which was Jack Parsons like chapel wannabe place has quote disturbing atonal music emitting from somewhere unquote during its magic ceremonies other scenes have the distinct hum of fire and electricity described perfectly every time the sound cue would have appeared in the show. Sound is just as specifically important here as it is in the rest of Twin Peaks. I love that Mark, that Frost understands this and made a point to include it as explicitly as he does, unquote. So I thought that was really interesting that it's like, it's not even just a musical cue or a sound cue for the, sh- the show, it's part of the show. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Joe, do you want to explain diegetic sound for people like myself who are not uh, experts at sound or sound design? Thank you for deputizing me as uh, the expert in diegetic sound. Uh, but it is. <laughs> I was going to give the Cliff Notes version and be like, Joe, explain it. <laughs> yeah. From my understanding, I mean, the, the way that I view it is something that diegetic sound, whether it's music or, um, you know, some other kind of element of the sound design, is something that is occurring within the world of what you're seeing on the screen. Um, so a couple of examples of that from Twin Peaks are, well, one that we already mentioned, um, Mindy's the, the I uh, Love How You Love Me, that song is playing on the radio of that car. So, you know, she is reacting in bliss to that song, but the song isn't just something that's on the soundtrack that the audience can hear. It's something she's hearing, she's listening to, and that she's responding to. I think the most probably famous example of that within the Twin Peaks universe is probably Audrey's dance, which I think in two instances, both at the roadhouse and the return, as well as the first time you hear it. I don't know if that's episode two or three Mm -hmm. that's playing, you know, in the, in the first instance, it's something that she chooses to play on the jukebox. So she walks into the double R she puts money into the jukebox 
And that song, which shouldn't be on any jukebox anywhere in the United States, because it's just, <laughs> it's far too dreamy and does not exist. It's not a good realm, comes on that jukebox and she starts to dance. So it's not something that we're just listening to. I yeah. mean, it, it, it plays that role later in the, in the show. You know, it becomes kind of her sound, her tag. But in that instance, it's something that exists in the world. And then in season three and, and throughout, there's, you know, these wind elements, the electricity elements, very frequently that is happening. I mean, it's very heightened, but you're in a situation where there is wind, you're outside, there is wind, there is this, the crackle of electricity. Maybe if you're under high tension wires or, you know, you know whatever situation you are, you're staring at an le- electrical socket. It's heightened, but it's something, it's a hum that is there that is being picked up by the actual uh, characters. So it's something that is, you know, obviously very stylized and, and very amplified within this world. But this diegetic sound is something that the characters are actually interacting with in the space of the, the, the story that we're watching. Thank you for that. That is actually very, very helpful. Um, and also, wouldn't this world be a much better place if every jukebox did play Audrey's dance? Right. Absolutely. Um, one other thing I wanted to add about that, because um, I do I feel like electricity is is a good example of that kind of sound. But I also think it's really interesting that within especially in season three, it's like the person who's meant to receive the message is the one who hears it. Like it'll be playing and we, the audience will hear it, but like only Cooper will hear it with like, you know, I don't know, Gordon Cole standing right next to him, not noticing just as a, for example. Um, So I think that it's cool that like, he like sort of targets the different characters as well. So at times, it's a sound that is within the world of the show, but not everyone's hearing it. Just certain people. It just leads more, adds more to the mystery, and we could keep going and talking for hours. But yeah, I just think it, his usage of it is pretty rad, and I think it's cool that Mark Frost works it into the the books as well. Uh, absolutely, and I get great satisfaction on exactly that point, Mindy, as it relates to yeah, you know, someone being pre- kind of aware of something whereas someone who's just next door or, you know, just like standing next to them or a few steps away isn't. And, you know, a little bit later, we'll talk about some of the scenes that were really impactful for us. One of the ones that I have is, is an example of that. Um, so I guess since we've already kind of touched on electricity, maybe we should just go there. Um, Joe, thoughts on electricity in the world of Twin Peaks? It seems important. Uh, it seems like it runs everything. Uh, man, Mike certainly seems to think that it's important. Um, but it's it's just so prevalent. I mean, for me, it's it's this lifeblood. It's this force of connection, um, you know, where, where everyone is linked together and not only linked together through, you know, the, the, the sockets that exist within our homes, where there are numerous examples of that actually being, maybe not numerous, but examples of that actually being a pathway for, Cooper to come back, um, you know, into the body of Dougie Jones, et cetera. But it's, you know, a way to connect between worlds as well. And that episode three example in the kind of purple mauve room, I'm not sure if it has a better uh, name than that, you know, the kind of the, the entryway where, where Cooper comes in through that steampunky, um, yeah. you know, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. antique electrical panel. Um, and it seems like, that this these pathways that we've built to be able to transmit electricity, it's more than just, you know, being able to create light for ourselves, although that light tends to strobe uh, whenever David Lynch is around. 
but it's a way for actually these these spirits, these essences of people, these these elements of good and bad can uh, transport themselves in this you know in this kind of world in this battle in this you know however you want to classify within Twin Peaks. It's something that is incredibly relatable. Obviously, electricity is something that we're all surrounded with. We utilize so to be able to kind of u- use that as the pathway to be able to make some of this magic happen, or that's the kind of highway or, or, or passageway or transom whereby uh, this exchange of information and this exchange of, of threat can happen is just very, uh, for me, it's, it's compelling. It's something where it's like, you know, I can, I, I buy that, not that this is happening in real life, but it's, it's something that is, uh, it, it makes sense to me to kind of build it on, on the backs of something that uh, we, we rely on so heavily. Yeah, actually, um, <laughs> you're kind of reading my mind, Joe, and I'm sort of freaking out about that a little bit, um, but in a good way. But uh, I have never read this, but Mark Frost, I think I mentioned it earlier, did an access guide to Twin Peaks, a book when the original series aired um, that was like a just it was like the Laura Palmer's diary, like just an extra thing to go with the show. Um, but uh, according again to uh, the 25 years later.com fan site for Twin Peaks. Apparently in the access guide, um, Mark Frost talks very specifically, or the guide, I should say, talks about how sound is a force, like an actual force. And the free and frequency of that force is important. And I do actually, I was going to mention this later, probably, but I, I agree that I think that we'll call them the lodge folk, I guess, like the otherworldly beings can do certainly find ways to use that. That's how they can kind of go between realms. So, but I just thought it was really interesting that like, again, even in the book, they're mentioning that sound is very important and electricity seems to have the force that's needed to, to, you know, push Cooper into, you know, from that purple room into you know, Ducky Jones's gross rental home or, or pull him, or if there's enough power to pull someone out of their dream state, which I think Cooper realizes later in the series, which is why he sticks the fork in the socket, because that gives him enough of a jolt of electricity that has enough power and force to pull him back. So again, like the fact that this is something that they kind of work into everything, even not audible type properties <laughs> related to the show is is clearly important but yeah electricity is like that's something that frost seems to talk about apparently um is that sound is a force and that and electricity powers that force and we all you know we've all seen david lynch's other movies we know that he's been interested in electricity and he's featured it in other films um i don't think watching Twin Peaks, the original first two seasons, electricity was very noticeable to me. When I was rewatching some episodes this week, I noticed there was the electricity noise when they would show the One-Eyed Jacks sign or they would show the Roadhouse, you know, the Bang Bang Bar sign. You would hear electrical crackles. It definitely became a lot more important to the storyline in Fire Walk With Me. And then with season three is just like completely woven throughout the show. Any thoughts from either of you on why electricity is featured so much more prevalently 
in the third season than it is in the original series? I, I do. Um, I Well, first of all, uh, everyone knows I'm a dork anyway, so I'm going to expose myself further. Um, the theory in, in, that's prominent in paranormal research, like in our timeline, like in our reality here, is that ghosts or spirits are energy, which is why... Uh, like ghost hunters use tools that measure fluctuations in like magnetic fields and stuff like that. Um, and I think in season three, we learned in season one and two that, you know, there's this sort of period of time that goes by every 25 years where the stars align. Uh, and um, that's when the door opens to the lodge. And I think that because Cooper got caught in the lodge 25 years ago and Mr. C got out that now has we have the chance to reverse that and it kind of gets fucked up by cooper going farther down as opposed to out when laura tells him to and so i think that like the world is like or at least the world of twin peaks is like literally buzzing with that energy of trying to write that and that's just me guesstimating and what i think but just because i feel like there's so much hap so much more happening with the supernatural forces that are in flux in season three where we hear it because it's it's present because they're all around and trying to make their agendas happen but that's just me no i like that a lot uh, mindy i think that that's um it, i hadn't thought of it that way but uh, i think that i agree with a lot of that i mean you're looking at a world in season three that is um kind of building towards something so if you're focusing on the kind of large players that we're looking at uh, and then Mr. C, who's trying to avoid his eviction from Earth and going uh, back into into that other dimension, Black Lodge, waiting room, what have you, and all the people that are involved in that, Cooper included. And then even the folks that are in Twin Peaks um, that we haven't talked about, I mean, we, we've talked about, but that are, you know, some are doing well, but particularly the younger generation, you know, they, there's a lot of issues there. There's a lot of trouble, whether it's, you know, uh, Richard Horn and all of the issues that he's getting into or the others, there's just a lot of trauma and a lot of replaying of those cycles that we saw the first time around. And it seems like it's building. And I think that the prevalence of electricity is kind of representative of that, the building of stress, that building of damage, you know, there, there's just something that's about to pop here. Like, you know, to your point, there's something that's aligning. Maybe that's going to be a release valve um, and, and be able to dissipate some of this electricity, maybe not. And, you know, everything's going to kind of reach a level where everything blows up. But it just seems like there is a steady crescendo of, in many ways, anguish. But one thing I'd like to point out is that the electricity itself seems to be not necessarily, it seems to be, you know, it, it plays for the good side as well. You know, the, the kind of yeah. fire realm, the White Lodge, however you want to classify that. There, there are certainly electrical elements to that as well. And so it's not purely a negative force, but it's something that is certainly foreboding in just in the, in the world of Twin Peaks or just in the world of the U.S. In uh, 2017, when this is set, it seems like it's, uh, it's, it's building. Yeah. And Sharon, I actually, this literally just occurred to me, but um, when I agree that there's not a whole lot of sound in seasons one and two of electricity, as there are obviously in season three, but um, if you remember, as we're getting close to the end of season two, we're getting close to that 25-year 
opening to the Black Lodge. Mm-hmm. And there's the two scenes. One is like a rando old lady in the double R who's eating her pie and her hand out of nowhere starts shaking uncontrollably. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and then later the same happens to Cooper. He's looking out the window, you know, thinking about all of the bad shit that's happening and Wyndham Earl. And so I think that they just, they were work. That might've been their way of working it in. But like Joe kind of mentioned earlier, like seasons one and two, obviously were like network drama. soap opera E more type styled shows, but the stakes are much higher in season three too. So I think that's why we're hearing that buzzing a lot more as well. And you're right, Joe, it's a conduit. It's not, it doesn't, I don't think electricity is good or bad. It's a conduit. You can use it for good or evil, just like the force, actually. (laughs) Before we move on to our next topic, anyone else have any final thoughts about electricity other than what we covered? If not, I just have a quick little fun fact about the evolution of the arm. Ooh, yes. Uh, No, just one thing. I mean, it seems like it was the... uh... Electricity played a large part in the end of Richard Horn. So in that instance, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Totally pro-electricity. Oh, yeah. That was a I watched that episode this week. That was a huge electrical noise. I don't remember it being that long of a of a scene of him getting uh, fried. But, totally. man, he had it coming. Absolutely. He just, he just served every painful moment of and that. And then what is... Uh... Horn, Jerry Horn say was he's like bad binoculars because he's stoned and like watching it from a distance and he thinks he did it. Oh, I, I love it so much. Anyway, and and that's the the little bit of humor thrown into a very dark scene. I love it. Yeah, um, exactly. So we know that David Lynch never reveals his secrets of really how he does anything. But I did find this little tidbit about the sound that was used for the evolution of the arm. It's actually a real power line sizzle that was recorded in Poland while they were doing production for Inland Empire. Dean Hurley said that he'd gone out recording, just, you know, recording random sounds. The snow had just fallen. It was super quiet. He was in a desolate area under a bunch of power lines that were really, really loud. And because the sound was dampening by all the snow that was surrounding him, it was just this very prominent sound for the environment. And it was really easy for him to record without much, any other extraneous noises going on around him. So that is basically the exact sound for the evolution of the arm. And I, that's awesome. And I think it makes sense that the evolution of the arm would both visually and audibly have a stronger, because I feel like that static noise is like really like there's crazy static happening, but it's an, he's evolving still or she or whatever it is. So I would, I just like took that for granted as like, of course there's tons of electricity happening with this thing because it's evolving still. Um, but that's awesome that he, I just love that. Like find a weird noise, record it and see what you can do with it. Oh, it's awesome. I hope that didn't take away any magic for anyone. Right. No, not at all. It's, it's, that's great because to your point, um, there, there is so much magic that still remains there because they're so tight lipped in terms of how they go about capturing these sounds and what makes them up. It's, it's very much a, um, don't look behind the curtain and we don't want to tell you what's behind the curtain because it'll, in some way minimize the effect, um, which I appreciate and I think is, is totally accurate. There's part of me that is curious and wants to know, um, you know, a little bit what they're doing in the process around that. But man, I just love not knowing. And if you guys have any beer left, let's give a little toast uh, to Dean and to Ron Ang and to, to David and to 
everyone who's involved in the sound here because from the stuff that I've read around Dean Hurley, basically David Lynch has bought a, a house in Los Angeles and that's where he does most of, if not all of his both uh, film editing and sound production design and editing. So he just, Dean and whoever is working with him work out of this house and, you know, are just kind of doing that. They're kind of capturing sounds out in the wild, creating them in that room, doing it on a quick turnaround based on, you know, whatever the, whatever the boss is interested that day and whatever he thinks is going to, um, going to inspire him. So cheers to all of them. Cheers. Wow. And yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. Um, from what I was reading, I think it was from the IndieWire article. They actually started creating sounds together for season three, like seven years before the show came out. And exactly. Lynch has his own dubbing stage and recording studio that supposedly looks like a theater. Um, he's got an 18 foot screen to mix sounds on. He's got isolation booths to record music. Um, and they just, yeah, the three of them, uh, Dean Hurley, uh, David Lynch and, uh, Ron Eng, they come up with sounds and they just have like this big, uh, database of sounds to choose from and play with and sounds fascinating. That's awesome. <laughs> Do you guys want to get into some specific scenes now? It could be, um, from any of the seasons you want to talk about, um, but favorite Favorite sound scenes. Uh, Joe, you want to start us off? Put me on the spot. Sure. That sounds great. Uh, I think that for me, one of the first ones is season one, um, episode three, just the kind of the first trip into the red room where you get kind of older, you know, kind of a Cooper that's made up um, in old age makeup. You have the man who's referred to as the man from the other place at this point. I think this is the introduction of, of kind of backwards talking and backwards sound effects, which is also kind of a prevalent element within the Red Room as it relates to just footsteps and, and everyone's, um, obviously everyone's physical activity, but the sounds that go along with them. I'll probably, it, it's something that it, just always assume that what I'm saying for season one and two is that this was on ABC primetime like right now in that same time slot, it's probably like a spinoff of the Goldbergs or something. Yeah. And it's like making, <laughs> you know, making fart jokes and uh, not that there's nothing against a good fart joke, but this is what we're, what you saw in those first two seasons. And this is that kind of first taste of that. I mean, there are certainly elements of the strange and the sublime in the first few episodes, but this is that first step beyond that threshold into something that was wholly new, um, wholly transfixing, and had its own uh, rules associated with it, had its own sound associated with it, and was something that became a, a cultural touchpoint almost immediately, something that was very um, arresting for just so many people. And it's just that kind of first step into that world that we've been living in since and for that, I just wanted to to, to highlight that uh, on the on the jump. Yeah, I I actually think about that all the time, and it's funny because I have like at, you know at work now I have a number of coworkers that are younger than me. I'm not going to talk about that, but you know they don't know Twin Peaks, and uh, I have to, I feel like I am constantly saying to people, so American horror story like that wouldn't exist had David Lynch not done this. Cause you're right. This was prime time television and people were like, what the fuck is happening? Like, and I just think that's 
ballsy as hell, first of all, which I love. And mind-blowing. Maddie's death scene is still, like, one of the scariest moments on television I've ever seen. And that aired on network fucking television. It blows my mind. One specific scene that I wanted to talk about um, is, is something that can be compared between seasons one and two and three. I thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about those differences and get your guys' thoughts on it. And it is the infamous record scratch noise. We hear in seasons one and two, we hear the record scratch quite literally in the Palmer living room on their lovely record player. And it usually seems to imply something bad's going to happen, like when Maddie dies. However, at the beginning of season three, we're in the room at the very start with the fireman and Cooper. And the fireman asks Cooper if he hears a noise. And what they show looks like sort of a old-timey record player. I personally think the sounds are quite different. And I had two possible explanations for this, and I wanted to know what you guys thought. One thing that I noticed for the first freaking time last night, again, I've seen, how many times have we watched these, Sharon? Like, seriously? Oh my gosh. When Maddie comes downstairs, and then, of course, gets attacked by Leland, we, that we're actually seeing the record player as we're hearing the scratch, and there's a record on it and the needle has reached the end of the record and is just stuck in that groove, kind of like in a loop. Huh? Huh? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and it's not like, you know, usually my record player would like reject the needle and send it back to its holder or whatever. And it, that's a very different sound from if you don't put a record on a record player, but put the needle on like the platform or the turn, turntable, sorry. <laughs> Clearly I'm not a DJ. The turntable and just let it run the sounds of it scratching on an actual record versus the turntable itself are very different. One thought I had was maybe the reason that it sat, the sound in season three is so different is because it's, it's a different kind of circumstance. The other thing I was wondering is if it's literally just the difference between using actual film and digital, because obviously the original series was not filmed in digital HD. <laughs> um, but the season three was. So what are you guys, what are your thoughts on that noise, you guys? And I'm just calling it from season three, I'm just calling it a record scratch because it kind of sounds like that to me. But if you think it might be something else, I'm all ears. I'll jump in. And that's that's a very interesting point because I think both sounds are pretty critical to Twin Peaks. Not that I know how they are. I mean, I think the one when Leland reveals himself to be the killer is a little bit more uh, cut and dry. But in the beginning of the return episode one, you're referring to when, when Cooper and the firemen are sitting in the room. Yes. And yeah, I know that in my mind, I was trying to draw a parallel between them, but I think that the sounds themselves are not the same. They Mm. could be. And for me, it's the, I guess I'll start a little bit with the, the season three one where that sound I'm sure is there in the soundtrack multiple times, but where I think it is distinctly there is at the end of episode 17, right before, like when um, Cooper and Laura are walking through the woods after Cooper has intervened in the past. Yes. And she breaks the handhold from him and gets kind of whisked away. So my understanding of that through things that I've read and just the kind of way it's presented in the show 
is more that that sound that you first hear right at the beginning and then is repeated there is kind of that is a Judy sound is, is the sound of the presence of Judy that, you know, kind of, she is made making herself, uh, you know, uh, present in your world and, and, and there are going to be consequences for that. So I, I can pause there to see if that's generally the kind of take that you guys have, or if that's uh, you guys had another thought. So I, yeah, I have some thoughts on this too. So the fireman actually says in that first episode, listen to the sounds, For me, I kind of thought it sounded like a cricket, and Joe's right. That's the same sound that you hear when Laura gets snatched away from Cooper in the woods. I did some digging on Reddit because I had no idea what was making the noise, and people who are much smarter than me figured it out, and I have two theories. Uh, once again, gimme, 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 gimme. These come from people on Reddit, so... I'll send you guys the link to this, or we'll actually, all of our um, resources that we use today, we'll put the link in our episode description. But there's one scene that someone found from the missing pieces, a fire walk with me, where Laura takes out her diary and unlocks it with a key. And someone discovered that that noise when turned up if reversed or like partially reversed and also with the speed being altered sounds just like that noise that I thought sounded like a cricket noise there was also a theory that it could be the the record skipping once again partially reversed reverse sped up slow down whatever you know David Lynch and his team in the studio altering this noise I do agree with Joe that the sound probably does represent Judy, although there's other theories that it could possibly be um, a sound that represents a loop in the narrative. Yes. Or the, t- the timeline being altered. I'm not really sure. I kind of thought it was synonymous with Judy. That's my personal belief. Um, but then after rewatching some of the episodes this week, I was thinking that because the sound originates, we first hear it, in the, are we going to say that where Cooper and the firemen are in episode one, the White Lodge? Anyone disagree that? With that was my impression. So yeah, that works. I'll allow it. Okay. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, you sound like Judge Wapner. Um, <laughs> no, the judge on Futurama. I'm going to allow this. <laughs> but maybe the sound could represent the firemen or the white or maybe it's like the sound for the white lodge because there is a sound for the red room as well which i don't know if you guys noticed that but there's definitely a noise that is repeatedly used throughout season three that represents the red room so i'm wondering if this noise could represent the white room and maybe the firemen was pissed that cooper was going to alter the timeline and he already had plans for laura and how to use her basically to handle the situation with Bob and Judy. So he snatched her away. I mean, this is getting off onto like a whole other episode that we can do about. Yeah, I mean, that's going to happen regardless. Yeah, about (laughs) theories alone. But I honestly don't know what the sound represents. You know, no one, no one does for sure. I I would like to interject a little bit if I could, because it's, yeah, I would love to get it because that's, if we're talking about my favorite scene in all of Twin Peaks, it's the end of episode 17. Oh, totally. And it's, it's from that kind of Cooper enters into the past. And that, like at that point through the end of that episode. And, you know, we can go through that 
kind of piece by piece or just talk a little bit more about the sound. But one thing I want to highlight here is that's interesting. And I hadn't thought about it that way. Interesting, meaning that 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 sound, that kind of cricket record player sound is something that is more of a uh, White Lodge positive type of a sound. And it's interesting because the way that it's used there is not that, right? I mean, it, it might be, but it's it's so uplifting as a viewer when Cooper comes in, introduces himself to Laura in 1989, and you cut to that body wrapped in plastic that just blinks out of existence. I don't know that I've ever felt a sense of optimism to match that in kind of watching anything, really, because it's something that is just has been taken as a given. It's a, it's a horrible tragedy that undergirds this entire story. And then just to say there's an opportunity for us to just erase it and to and to make different choices as they've said throughout the show, you know, the past dictating the future. What if we are able to actually just kind of rectify that? So you have this tremendous sense of optimism as they're walking through the woods. It's, of course, tempered because so many things in Twin Peaks are tempered. You can't just like have a straight win. And as you they continue their walk, even though there aren't any strong audio cues, I think, or at least none that I picked up, that things were trending in the wrong direction. Just the fact that you continue focusing on them, you, you're like, okay, something could go wrong here. And then... I think it does go wrong. So that sound, the cricket sound, for me, I mean, maybe that's like the fireman saying, Cooper, you're not doing exactly what I want. Um, so I'm going to kind of change the script here. But for a viewer, which again is very subjective, it just is so terrifying and such a jump from the, 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 the mix between high and low at the end of that episode of how I felt watching it the first time and in subsequent viewings. I don't know that I don't know that I've had a crestfall ever like that. It's just it's so profound. Um, so that's the one thing that says for me that says I think I think that's a negative sound. But I'm also open to the fact that I, I don't know the inner workings of this world and and who knows what the grand design is going to be. Yeah, and also the the cricket noise is followed by Laura's scream. So right, <laughs> you know that kind of makes it seem like oh, okay, this is what could have been positive. Uh, maybe it was not so positive. Yeah, but she, she doesn't know where she's going. She's, you know, she can scream just because she's just really good at it. And she, she is. She's great at she it. Is, that is, she is an amazing screamer, for sure. Um, so I just sent you guys an email. Um, I don't know if you can access it now, but it's the YouTube clip of Laura opening her diary in The Missing Pieces. Really? And you can hear how it's similar to that cricket sound that is i hadn't heard that before sharon that's interesting i that's a really but if you guys want to pull that up and listen to it now it's very subtle like you have to turn it all the way up it's pretty damn close and i could definitely see it as being something where it's like um you know something that hurley and lynch and them have like tweaked with right it's not like a one-to-one but that's the source yeah and they Mm -hmm. They turned it down or they slowed it or they whatever. It, it seems like it's a little, it's got a little bit of a different. Yeah. Again, not, not listening to the side by side, but it seems like maybe it's a little bit higher or it's, you know, a little bit of a higher pitch, but it could definitely be the same thing. I've seen the shows, the episodes and the movie so many times and there's still stuff that I'm like, holy shit, I never noticed this. But the other thing though, too, to remember is that I was surprised that David Lynch actually said and Mark Frost said that when they rewatched the season two finale together, they forgot that Laura said, I'll see you again in 25 years. And like, there's a whole plot line around the time when the Black Lodge opens. 
So I so part of me is like it could have meaning or it could just be a cool sound that David Lynch found. Like it's hard to tell. These guys are not. I could very well be wrong, but this whole endeavor, the Twin Peaks endeavor, does not give me any kind of a feeling of something that is well thought out. And I don't mean that as a criticism. <laughs> right. No, I agree. I, th- I think that they kind of they do they build whatever world they need to build for whatever they're doing, and I think they've been incredibly successful because they're incredibly creative of just kind of adding on to that and retconning stuff and some of it works and some of it is doesn't. And, but mostly the, the everything's so the images and the sounds are so arresting. It, it hardly even matters. Like, it's just, it's so goddamn good. Right. All, all of it could be contradicting everything and I'd still be along for the ride. Joe, you're exactly right because David Lynch and Mark Ross can't even agree on (laughs) what what it means what or what's going on here like they each have their own interpretations of like the two creators and writers of the show can't even agree i think it's kind of ridiculous to argue like no this is what this means like a hundred percent right you know it's it's all theories it's it's part of the fun of it is like coming up with your own theories and exploring what you're watching on the screen and right yeah you no, no one's right. I think it goes back again, though, too, to the the quote that you read at the beginning, Sharon, about David Lynch seeing a piece of art and thinking moving image. You know, like I think you're, I think Joe, you just alluded to this, but like imagery and sound, he'll he's more obsessed with the visual and like I had this weird dream and this is what I saw and what do I how do I make that come to life as opposed to like connecting the dots, if that makes sense, which I I, oh, I agree. I don't care. I will watch that even if it makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. Like it's still gorgeous and amazing to watch and terrifying and wonderful. And, and yeah, I'm down. I, and I don't want to get too off topic, but I have so many thoughts about this in doing research for this. I found an article that was talking about not sound, um, but talking about the whole coop loop thing. And the, the article, again, 25 years later site, it's an interesting read, but the gentleman who wrote it was talking about how he sees the show, or I'm sorry, season three specifically, we're seeing three distinct attempts of Cooper trying to write this for whatever reason. And so that opening scene with the fireman, that's, that's the Cooper that we know from seasons one and two. The way he reacts when the, the fireman says, what does he say? He says, it's like, it is in our house now. Yeah. And Cooper looks back at the record player and is like, it is. And very clearly understands what that means, even though we don't. Wait, but does he? Or is he saying it is like question mark at the end of that? That's to me how I took it. I took it as like, oh shit, it is. Because then he says, he goes on with the whole two birds, one stone thing. You know, Richard and Linda, three or four, three, zero. And Cooper goes, I understand. Very affirmatively. And then when he gets into what I think in the first series or the first two seasons, they referred to the Red Room as like the waiting room in the finale. Then the giant says, you are very far away, and Cooper disappears. And I feel like when we see him in the Red Room, it's he's still there, but he's a little dazed, kind of. And I might be reading into this, but I actually think that that sound might mean here's another chance to start a new loop. Hmm. That might be a stretch. I don't know. But I like all y'all's fe- your theories. So That could be. And one of the things that I, in rewatching. I was struck by the kind of the um, the presence of individuals that are in the White Lodge. So there we see Cooper and we see Andy. 
I don't know that anyone else, uh, you know, besides the kind of inhabitants, um, you know, any earthbound people that we see enter there. We do, we do see Major Briggs's head, but that's... Major Briggs's head, right. <laughs> and they're both kind of like locked up. Like there's, it's similar to the Red Room, which I think in both instances, there is a um, inhibitor there. There's a limitation of the way that people are able to move, the way that they're able to express themselves. It's very stiff and rigid. They're either monosyllabic or barely able to talk. It's very kind of Cooper in the Dougie Jones body. It's like you have a, a governor on you where you're limited in what you're able to do. And then there's a bit of a change in that when he gets into that purple room where he has a bit more agency, a bit more fluidity. You know, there's still, obviously that is just an incredibly vivid um, scene there, both from a sound and, and visual and performance and editing, actually. There's a lot of tremendous visual editing cuts yes. and quick jabs there. But he seems more full of himself, you know, able to kind of move throughout the space in a way that is a little bit more fluid, a little bit more like the Cooper that we remember, yeah. as opposed to kind of locked in a chair, very rigid. So that th- those are some of the takeaway- takeaways I took is it's like, he's in here, or they're in here now, or however that is phrased, and him saying, you know, it is, to being very, like, that he knows that it's, he can't express it in a way where it's very, yes, I know we have to do X, Y, and Z to start the plan, but it's very much understood that, you know, over these past 25 years, you've been imparting your knowledge to me and we've been developing this course of action. I don't know what it is as a viewer, but there's a certainty that he knows what comes next. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never heard anyone discuss that, the differences between the actual um, body and sound behaviors of the characters in the different rooms like that. Um, well, that's why you bring me on the show, kid. That's why, that, I, uh, <laughs> why I pay me the big bucks. That's why we have the the genius uh, from... What the fuck is the name of your band? <laughs> from, the, from the Carney band? From the laughing Carney from band? From the, the Gypsy Carnival. Um, I totally yeah, stop forgot it. the name because 10, 10% alcohol by volume. Furious Frank. Furious Frank, right. <laughs> Furious Frank. Frank Booth. Blue Velvet. David Lynch. Twin Peaks. Full circle. <laughs> Joe, actually, that that is a really good point. And um, I think Sharon just made me lose my train of thought as to what I was going to say about... Oh, that's what it is. Okay. So initially, when I watched the series and I saw that ending, I actually with the loop thing, got mad at Cooper because I thought, what a dick to like the hubris (laughs) on that guy to think I'm going to go and try and fix things and start clean when that could affect everything, good or bad. I mean, you know, Ed and Norma finally got together and him going and reversing the whole Laura's death that could mean that that never happens. So, like, I was thinking, who is he to fuck with that? But it's a really interesting idea, and I and now I'm, like, torn as to how I feel about it. I'm not as mad at him anymore, but anyway, I just had to elaborate on that. No, and to build on that, and this is not a sound piece, although I don't know if you guys want to talk about or, or are interested in talking about, obviously everyone wants to talk about episode eight, but... I can never begrudge. It's so insane. I I agree with everything that you're talking about, Mindy, in terms of if you change this, these positive things, these heartwarming things that we've seen, maybe they never come to pass, right? That's something I was challenged with too and trying to think through how how I feel about that. But there's something about the role that Laura plays here in terms of her being 
created, I mean, seemingly created by the firemen as a response to this threat um, that, that's been unleashed by the atomic bomb and all the kind of Judy miscreants that, that follow that. Almost as much as the, the joy that I had when her dead body flipped off the screen and was no longer there, seeing her face in that orb, I never, I, I, can't, I can't imagine, I have no idea why I respond so positively to that. I, it's just, it's so uplifting. And it's so batshit insane. I mean, this is a woman who's been terrorized and and put upon and you know and abused and tortured and and hates herself and is lonely. And and this is our. I mean, that's put too strong a word on. But Messiah, this is our. This is the one. This is the the person who is going to kind of fight this evil. And this is the treatment that she's had to go through for that. And I never thought of it that way up until that point, because I think that the story evolved. Like, I don't know that I don't think that that was Lynch's and Frost's intent from the beginning, maybe. But, um, you know, they were they were able to find a way to retcon it that um, I think makes a tremendous amount of sense. And it's just incredibly I was going to say satisfying. That's the wrong word. It's very challenging. But there's a there's a satisfaction in that challenge where it's you're aware of what this um, character is going to go through. But at the same time, it's good to have her as the one. Which is said multiple times, Laura is the one. And she's strong enough to handle it. So, yeah. Absolutely. And that's a whole other conversation getting into why is she the one and is Judy inhabiting her mom and is did Bob inhabit. Cut, cut all that out. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. No, 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 no. no, no, that, no. You will come back on the show and we will delve further into why Laura is the one. I mean, we can definitely do a whole episode on Laura alone. There's there's so many things to talk about in that respect. I think this is a good stopping point. Join us next week for the second half of our conversation with Joe about the sound design of Twin Peaks. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation thus far, and I apologize to any non-Twin Peaks fans out there if this isn't your thing, and after next week, I promise we will be back to our regularly scheduled program of horror, true crime, and paranormal conversations. But thank you all for listening to us. Please rate and review us on whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Like we have said, it helps us get more exposure. It's free, and it only takes a few minutes. If you are able to, please subscribe to our Patreon. If you want to have early access to episodes, see exclusive posts, and maybe receive cool shit, the link to our Patreon is in our Instagram bio. Check us out on social media, though we pretty much only ever look at Instagram. Uh, you can email us at horrorstalkhor at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for upcoming topics that you want us to cover. You can also share any ghost stories, creepy stories, true crime stories, or whatever weird or bizarre stories that you may have, and we can read those on our show. Also, you can write to us and tell us what your thoughts are on sound design in Twin Peaks or just in the world of David Lynch in general and we can read that on our show as well please you know stay safe uh, be kind to each other and as always thanks for getting creepy with us thanks for getting creepy with us Sharon do you want a beer? Uh, oh my god